0: In the first episode of the Mosin at Large podcast, we're going to go back and have a look at Windows 95, all those memories, and look at what technology of the day is like, whether there are any dangers, some signposts we should be looking for, and more. Well, you can take the boy out of the podcast or something. It's great to be back with you on the Mosin at Large podcast. And since this is the first, let me explain to you what this is and what it is not. And why are we here? Why are we here? What's the purpose in life? And why do we spend so much time wearing digital watches? Sorry, that's, a, that's an obscure Douglas Adams reference. A number of people have said to me, why don't you podcast again? And my answer to that was because I'm busy, mate. Very busy. Loving my new job here in New Zealand And when it came to making a choice about keeping some of the things going that I used to do, I had to make a pretty tough choice, and that was that even though a lot more people were listening to the Blindside podcast than were listening to my radio show on Mushroom FM, the Mosin Explosion, the Mosin Explosion or its variants have been going on now for about 20 years, and it seemed really difficult to give it up. And so every Saturday now, because I work Monday to Friday, New Zealand time, in an office. So every Saturday Eastern time, which is a Sunday morning in New Zealand, between 2pm and 6pm Eastern time, that's 7pm in the UK on a Saturday, right now that means bright and early at 6am on a Sunday morning, I come down here to the studio and we do the Mosin Explosion live. Then I thought, wouldn't it be good if I could try and synthesize the two things, Not everybody wants to listen to four hours of live radio, or maybe they can't. You know, maybe they've got a life. And then there are others who just don't like the music I play on there, which tends to be really retro. You just play way too retro music, Mosin. And so I thought, why can't we come up with a podcast that is based for the most part on the content of the Mosin Explosion? Because there's quite a lot of talky talk. On the Mosin Explosion. And so that's what we are doing. As you can hear, we've invested a bit in this to try and make it sound professional and enticing. I hope you'll find it entertaining. I'm sure that some of the things that I say will infuriate you from time to time, and maybe it'll be a bit informative as well once in a while. It is not the Blind Side podcast. It's not as slick, except for the jingles. We don't have an interview every week. We're not committed to looking at things from a blindness perspective. This podcast is all about me getting in touch, really, and saying, hi, this is what I'm thinking about this week. What do you think, too? Now, the best way to tell me what you think is to tune into the show live on Mushroom FM on the Mosin Explosion. You can do that by asking your device of choice, such as your soup drinker.
1: Oh, sorry. Stop.
0: I've got my soup drinker in here. To... Play Mushroom FM on TuneIn, or you can go to Mushroom FM on the web at mushroomfm.com and check out the schedule, which will tell you when the Mosin Explosion is on live in your time zone. You can, however, if you really must, comment on all this stuff after the fact if there are things that you just have to have your say on, and there are two ways primarily that you can do it you can give me a call and let your voice be heard. And the number in the United States is 864-60-MOSIN. That's 864-606-6736. I'll give it to you one more time. 864-60-MOSIN. You can also drop me an email, and that email could contain an audio clip, or you could just write something down. And the email address is Jonathan, that's J-O-N-A-T-H-A-N at Mushroom FM dot com jonathan at mushroomfm.com. I don't guarantee to play everyone, but you know, if it's interesting, we'll probably play it. And and not trolly, because we don't like the trolls. Oh no, we don't. I'm gonna do my best to produce a version of this podcast every week based on the last Mosin Explosion episode. But there are a couple of things to note. I can't guarantee when I'll get it out because this is very much a hobby for me and I do have lots to do. And I can't guarantee absolutely that I will get around to doing it every week. I'll try and do it more often than not. So as you can tell, it's very much looser. You'll find that although we're really geeking out on this episode because it's based on the Mosin Explosion show where we celebrated the 24th anniversary of Windows 95, it is not always about tech. It's not always about heavy political things. It is going to be a very wide-ranging podcast, really just giving me the chance to connect with you and tell you what I'm thinking about. For example, I'm thinking right now about this 50th anniversary remix of Abbey Road and how I am going to get myself in a room full of Dolby Atmos equipment. So I'll talk about that a bit later. But when we do talk about technology, of course, this is one of the things that inspired me to use once again the name Mosin-At-Large. As the name for the podcast, because I don't work for any technology companies anymore. And some people would say when I was offering my opinions on things, you are just a shill for insert company name here that I happen to be working for. Well, I'm not working for anybody now in that sector. uh, So I get to say what I like, and I jolly well will. And I'm sure that other people will have their views as well. So are you strapped in? Are you ready for this? The Mosin at Large podcast is finally a happening thing.
1: Jonathan Mosen Bosin
0: at Large Podcast We are going to be talking today about your Windows memories and I see that some are coming in already because it was on this day, the 24th of August, 1995, that Windows 95 was released. 24 years ago today, which is exactly the same amount of time as Smokey's been living next door to Alice. Don't be-
1: No, it's true. Isn't
0: that an incredible coincidence? 24 years. It was a big deal. You know, no one really gets that excited about Windows uh, updates anymore. They come out every sort of six months and when you get them very much depends on a whole range of factors. Sometimes they might take ages to turn up on your machine. Other times they're pretty immediate. Sometimes if you've got more than one machine in the house, it takes a while to get on one, but um, it's instant on the other, and it's all very mysterious, and then every so often your documents disappear. (laughs) But, of course, in Windows 95 time, we um, had to go and get the physical media. There were midnight launches, and the Rolling Stones gave their permission to use Start Me Up, because it was the ushering in of the era of the start button. And I remember people pointing out as the Rolling Stones were blasting. They were blasting.
1: <laughs>
0: start me up all around the world back on the 24th of August, Windows 95 time. When when they were blasting it around the world. People did point out that one of the lines in the Rolling Stones song Start Me Up was you made grown men you make grown men cry which some people thought was sort of sort of apt but it was a big change and uh, certainly from an accessibility perspective I remember going from Windows 3.1 to Windows 95 and I thought it was a really big improvement We couldn't go to Windows 95 on the actual day. I don't think there were any screen readers that were ready on the day for Windows 95. And, of course, this is one of the big things that has changed. There used to be this lag that existed between when a new operating system would come out and when screen readers could catch up. Because back then, in those days, screen readers didn't have any official way of uh, hooking in to operating systems and so they would have to get the operating system and work out how to get in there and there was not a lot of cooperation that officially went on back then so there was a bit of a delay it's possible that window bridge was pretty quick off the mark um, because window bridge was pretty quick off the mark in those days it was kind of uh leading the field really back in those early days of Windows 95. So if you have some memories of your first Windows experiences, how were you feeling about it? You know, Many people thought when Windows started to become the dominant operating system in the mainstream world that we were going to lose a lot of the things that we had gained from the DOS era. There was a lot of nervousness. People thought Windows is this graphical environment. It's going to be a horrible development. And I do credit, as I said on the biographical podcast series that Glenn Gordon recently completed with me, I do credit things like real audio and some of the things that you just couldn't do outside Windows for encouraging a lot of blind people to give it a shot because people started hearing about how you could listen to these radio stations around the world and do different things. You could do your word processing in DOS, of course. You had WordPerfect, which was... um, uh, a big, a big thing. You could obviously do mail and various things of that nature, but uh, there were certain tasks that started to develop that were Windows only, and uh, as well as the workplace going more and more Windows like. So, I do remember, for example, downloading Window Bridge with my now what would it have been? It might have been a nine thousand six hundred board modem back then. From Willie Wilson's Blinklink, you would actually have to make a physical phone call. To the bulletin board, I think he might have only had one line, maybe two lines. Uh, so you'd you'd keep you'd set your auto dialer up, you know, beep 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 beep, beep and uh, keep going. Uh, if if there was a busy signal, it would automatically detect the busy signal, wait a few seconds, and dial again until so you could finally. yeah I remember just waiting and waiting, and then finally you'd hear the ring and the modem connect tone. And of course, a call to the United States was not only jolly expensive back then. But of course, um, it, it, it's a long way. And so that would cause all sorts of little glitches and sluggishness with the modem connection. But eventually you could get something like somewhere Window Bridge and install the demo and run it. And I certainly remember using uh, Windows 3.1 in that way and with JAWS as well, um, using you know, Windows 3.1. I think for many people, um, when JAWS came along, it was just, um, you know, the the defining moment because people realized that maybe this windows thing was going to be doable Jonathan
1: Mosen, Mosen at Podcast.
0: how's narrator working out for everybody i really worry about the dumbing down of accessibility when we had window wise around of course you had uh, their script file their set files rather and um They had a a range of ways of doing scripting. So it's not so much that I think JAWS had a monopoly on good ideas, but what you have now is technology that basically skims the cream from the top so easily. So if all you use is the Microsoft applications, you can probably get away with using things like Narrator or NVDA, but... Not that efficiently. If you use either of those screen readers, say, with Microsoft Outlook, it's as chatty as hell and pretty inefficient. And I think one of the things we really have to think about as a blind community is efficiency. Because when you glance at a screen as a sighted person, it's amazing how quickly you can access the information. Yeah, just at a glance, whether it be something standing out visually highlighted or a different color or whatever. So we as blind people need to find ways of doing that equivalent thing. For example, when you open a message with either Narrator or NVDA in Outlook, you get a lot of header information um, with JAWS. And for that matter, I think I could do this with Window Eyes as well when it was around. So it's not just a sort of a pro JAWS thing. It's just an observation of a truly flexible truly customizable screen reader Uh, when i open an outlook message now what i prefer to do is have the message open i've already read who it's from and what the subject is in the inbox so when i press enter i want to be able to instantly start reading the body of the message with all of that superfluous header information not spoken and performing a, a say all basically so it's those sorts of things it's amazing how those productivity, efficiency things really do add up. This is an area where the Mac has never been able to nail it either. And I think the reason for that is that, you know, that the blind people have had so much input into those other products and they have done the hard graft. You know, they they have a robust off-screen model. They've really gone in there and, and they're usable for a range of things. And, of course, the reality is that most workplaces don't just use your standard office applications. They are using, in many cases, proprietary software that's been written by the workplace or for the workplace. And if you don't have access to a truly customizable, scriptable screen reader, you could be out of a job or, or not be able to do that job. So if we're going to tackle the unemployment crisis in not just the blind, well, well specifically in the blind community in this case, We've got to insist on having the most flexible, customizable, configurable access technology. And I get really scared that people think that the free solution, you know, when I say people, I mean potential funders think that the free solutions are on a par and they're not. Christopher Duffley, good for you. <laughs> he says, totally agree with you on the accessibility side of things. Don't be too surprised. If I use boot camped windows, if I'm on a Mac, especially for broadcast work, I've not found an SPL equivalent app yet. There are broadcasting apps on the Mac, but they are not as polished uh, from an accessibility point of view. And I suppose it depends on what other gear you have. If you have a mixer, there's probably, you know, I think you can get by. Uh, with using some Mac-based solutions. But these efficiency things really are important. And um, one of the interesting things that's happened, of course, with JAWS is that uh, they really got some of the technical stuff sorted out fairly early on. I think JAWS 3.31 was actually the um, the version that I think was the real breakthrough version because that was when the virtual cursor came along. And JAWS was not the first to have a virtual cursor. The very first one that I can remember that had a virtual cursor type environment on the web was actually Arctic WinVision, which not many people talk about anymore. There were a lot of these screen readers in the early days. And then not too long after that, Window Eyes had MSAA mode. I think Window Eyes MSAA mode might have been a bit ahead of the Virtual cursor. I might not be right about that, but all this was made possible because by this stage, and we're talking sort of 2000-ish, uh, Microsoft was starting to take an interest in accessibility, and they were unveiling platforms like Microsoft's Active Accessibility, where some information was being customized for screen reader use. So it was happening, but that was that was a big breakthrough. It was when virtual cursors started coming along and essentially reformatting the web in a more linear fashion. We've come a long way. But I'll give you another example too is um, the the skim reading tool in JAWS. I now have to deal with a lot of um, tabular data in my job as the CEO of the organization I lead and seeing how the organization is performing. And various data are color-coded and so if you have certain data that's color-coded say in red it basically means help this data is data you need to take notice of and with skim reading it's just so easy for me to take a really big document and instantly examine all the red color-coded data the data that is ceo i really need to be mindful of and on and on it goes those things really do matter in a um, job context and i think it's really important for our employability, that we keep making this case that, you know, products that just skim the cream off the top are not going to cut it for many people who want to live and work in our community in, in a wide range of jobs. But, you know, you never know. Um, it, it might be that over time, Particularly narrator, I think you know narrator is the one to watch, and it may be that over time um, it gets it it continues to get more and more capable, and it is i mean with every release it's absolutely getting more and more capable, so I suppose uh, with those six monthly release cycles as well, there is the potential there if resource allocation really does occur in narrator um there's there's the potential for something pretty spectacular to happen. And um, you have to say, although there's a, there's a lot of catching up that needs to have been done, but certainly uh, on the screen reader front, Microsoft has invested a lot more resource in Windows lately than Apple has on Mac.
1: Let's go
2: to
0: an audio email. Hey
2: Jonathan, Nick Zamorelli here. Hey, what a great topic. 0%. What a great topic this is. Whoa! Um, I got my first computer in 1994. I'd won an award at... The University of Rhode Island, and it was uh, over $2,000, over $2,200, actually. And my first computer was built uh, custom by a gentleman at uh, the local community college where I went before I went to URI. And at the time, it was state-of-the-art. It was a 540-meg hard drive. I was like, oh, my God, that's huge. I'll never use anything more than that crazy and my first screen reader uh, slash synthesizer solution was the arctic transport oh yes and with the
0: 263 back chip
2: then they had two pieces of software they had business vision for dos and WinVision vision yes for windows 3.1 and when windows 95 came around i actually got a copy for free uh there's a an organization that was an organization here in Rhode Island, I'm assuming that they still exist, called the Ocean State Center for Independent Living. For those of you who don't know, Rhode Island's nickname is the Ocean State. I did not that. And know I was that. able to get my copy of Windows 95 free from them, which was awesome. Uh, and it was only a few years after that that I went to... Um, a total software solution for screen reader, and that was windowized. Uh, but Windows ninety five was was awesome. I mean, I found it a lot easier to deal with than Windows three point one. And I don't know about you, but I think, in some respects, it was a lot easier to navigate than Windows ten is now. Um, but yeah, it was wonderful. It was a Windows ninety five was a game changer, no question about it. Um, and just as a uh, on a different subject here for a minute, I don't know whether you read this week. Android is ditching desserts, I and did I know read what you're going to say: better for carbs and everything better <laughs> without carbs. But Android is saying goodbye to desserts, and apparently the desserts started with C. For those again who are not Android users, Android's uh, software iterations are letters of the alphabet. So apparently the desserts began with C, and I believe they went cupcake, donut, eclair, frozen yogurt, gingerbread, honeycomb, ice cream sandwich, Kit Kat, lollipop, and pie. You
3: forgot and Jenny, bean. they're Bane. not
2: doing desserts anymore. They're just going to go with numbers, as is everyone else apparently these days. Mm. So the next version of Android is Android 10. And I don't know about you, but I'm going to miss the dessert names. I don't know whether it was just because they couldn't find a dessert that began with the letter Q or what the deal is there, but very interesting. But Windows 95, yep, definitely a game changer. And uh, I remember it well and fondly. Uh, Belated happy birthday to Bonnie. Oh, thanks. I hope everything is well with you. Be well, be happy.
0: I'll do my best, Nick, and I'll be even happier now that I've heard from you. Lovely. Are all those names really desserts, though? I mean, is gingerbread a dessert? Is Kit Kat a dessert? Kit Kat's a snack, isn't it? I don't know whether they... What about honeycomb? I mean, I don't know whether they're all really desserts, but I, that's the narrative, isn't it? I've read that in the tick press this week. That's interesting about your view that windows 95 was easier to navigate um i'd like to explore that a bit more with people whether others agree with that i guess i like the fact that um in windows 10 you press the windows key you type in the partial name of an application you want and you're right there you know you've got um settings available with windows i and uh, i don't know I, do, I don't i don't mind windows 10 actually i think um I think Microsoft's doing a pretty good job overall with, with Windows ten. It fascinates me that computers systems are so complex now that no matter how much testing you do, there can be still unmitigated debacles, debacles that go on when they're actually released. And yeah, you know, iOS is a case in point. We've had some terrible iOS um bugs creep through into gold releases in recent years. And of course, the dissemination of Windows builds has been a bit of a difficult thing for Microsoft. One thing, although Apple has had some buggy bugs that have come through, they do have the distribution really sorted, don't they? If you have got uh, and and I guess it, it it it's because they manufacture the hardware and the software. They're in complete charge of the ecosystem. But if you've got an Apple thing and you've been told that your apple thing is eligible for the this next operating system upgrade you'll get it on the day you'll know that you can go to the update mechanism after ten a m Pacific on the anointed appointed day, and it will be there. I mean it may be a bit of a crawl when everybody's trying to get it at once, but it'll be there whereas Microsoft they take a more fun approach. It's like you're waiting for the rapture or 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 you know or or your tax bill to come whatever <laughs> you know you know it's eventually going to well I don't know about the rapture i mean you you know the tax bill's going to come, but you don't quite know when, yeah. It all it all just builds and and finally it drops.
1: Mosin at Large Podcast. Let's go to the
0: phone again. Eight six four six zero. mosin is that number? Eight six four six zero six six seven three six.
1: Hello, Jonathan. It's Thomas Upton. Hello, Thomas. Uh, and for Windows ninety five, I know that for installing methods, some people could install it via MS DOS or standalone.
0: Yes, depending on your
1: choice. And yeah, I remember that, uh, of course, you can play DOS games on Windows 95 and DOS, of course, as the old days. Which, of course, people remember like games like Doom, Space Quest, and, and some others as well. And yes, I remember that I was listening to some videos from Billy Core, which you may know him, which his YouTube user is The Nostalgia Mall. Formerly Road Geek, but he demos old computers. Really? If you would like to check his channel out, search for The Nostalgia Mall on YouTube. That is The Nostalgia Mall. Wow. And yes, of course, nostalgia is what we want for the past. <laughs> Thank you so much. Yes.
0: Well, why not? Goodbye. Yeah. The older a we get. day. You too, mate. Good to hear from you, Thomas. And, yeah, the older we get, the, 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 the more fun nostalgia becomes. You've got mail. Yeah, well, well, man, we've got so many communications. My cup runneth over. And we have a couple of emails from Kelby. And uh, he says, writing from Pennsylvania to offer a brief Windows memory memories. I wasn't old enough to get on Windows 95, but my first memories of Windows 98 were playing Talking Typer by APH at school and learning the PC with Connect Out Loud. Yay, the baby version of JAWS. That was a very interesting marketing decision that um, Connect Out Loud. I remember featuring that on main menu. You know, just as you were going to do something really cool with it, it would say you have to You have to buy JAWS for this. That's interesting. I also have fond memories of playing many audio games and listening to Main Menu on the family computer. Here's a second email from Kelby in which I am being castigated. I rarely do it, he says, but I must register strong disagreement with your perspective on NVDA. I was actually forced to switch from JAWS When I got Word 2016 because it could not adequately handle footnotes, which was absolutely essential for my work, it took getting used to. But I find NVDA highly customizable and generally suited to most of my needs because it is open source It can also, like JAWS, have add-ons that improve the user experience. Of course, I would never think to say which screen reader is best in any situation, and JAWS may have the funding to interact better with more proprietary software. But I think it's a bit hard line to say that NVDA might endanger employment among the blind. Of course, this is all meant in the most cordial spirits. Mm, Drink the Kool-Aid. It's good to have these discussions. Well, um, thanks for the perspective, Kelby, and I absolutely stand by my statement. There are some customizable attributes of uh, NVDA, but it's nowhere near as customizable as Eyes was or yours is. There are two aspects where there are some really important employment things to consider. One is the number of applications that you can work with. It's really easy. Now that Microsoft has embraced concepts like UI automation, it's pretty straightforward to write a screen reader that just hooks in uh, to all of that information and exposes it. It's basically a user interface design issue. And indeed, I think that this represents another dumbing down of accessibility. The spell checker, for example, in Microsoft Word is way more verbose than it used to be because essentially Microsoft are requiring all screen readers to interface with it in the same way. So in the past, uh, JAWS would script it and it was way more efficient, way less chatty. Uh, And in fact, it is so bad that what I tend to do is take a document and copy the Word document into Microsoft Outlook, into the body of an email message, spell check it because JAWS still has um, full control and you get the good uh, non-verbose experience, and then paste the document back because… Microsoft sort of wants all screen reader experiences with with the office applications to be the same. And so there are real concerns about those um UI automation projects uh, period. But then when you go beyond that to give you an example, uh when I was doing consulting, I went in and I scripted and I mean I think any any consultant who's actually made jobs happen for blind people—and this is a really serious thing—we're talking about. We're not just talking about using the the, the, the easily uh, c- configurable applications like Office, where the accessibility is built in. I have been in work installations where uh, you might be, say, in a call center environment. Uh, one. I actually did was in a prison system with highly sensitive data. So there's, there's two things there. First, there is no way that an open source application would be allowed anywhere near something as secure as a prison system. Okay, So that you, rule it, you rule it out right there for very legitimate security reasons. But the second thing is just the sheer breadth of the functionality I was able to take an application that was completely awful with speech, no keyboard shortcuts, anything like that, uh, and essentially make it sing like it was designed for a blind person to use. So absolutely. I think NVDA will just die a natural death anyway because narrators are going to get more and more capable. And so if you've got something that's in the operating system that's free, it's going to be really hard for another free solution to continue to exist. So my real concern is that a lot of the funding decisions, a lot of the purchasing decisions are made by people who aren't blind and who don't understand that if the only applications that you need to use are full of UI, UI automation and you know the Microsoft Office suite and things like that, then actually... You may well now be able to make a case that says, look, Narrator's built into your computer. There's nothing to install. You don't have the hassles of uh, admin access whenever you want to update the jolly thing. Um, My argument would be if you um, only need access to Office applications, it might not be quite as efficient. And I do think that's something that we as blind people really need to guard very, very jealously. It's not just accessibility. Accessibility is different from efficiency. You can have something that's accessible without it necessarily being efficient. But taking that out of the equation, I think you could probably say that if all you want to do is access Word and uh, Outlook and those PowerPoint, probably Narrator's all right. You know, it's got Braille access now. It's improving all the time. It's uh, improving its user interface. And it's not open source, which is a real risk to many secure environments. And one thing I haven't mentioned, because I somehow got fixated on the Office applications, is browser-based applications. They are becoming increasingly more capable. And, of course, if you've got good access to a browser, and this is where actually NVDA works really well with Firefox, and I believe it's working a lot better with Google Chrome these days. JAWS works particularly well with Chrome and of course Microsoft Edge is going Chromium and browser-based applications are doing very well in those environments. And so I will certainly concede that over time it may be that as UI automation becomes more abundant in more apps and as browser-based apps increasingly become the norm, and you've gotten the rate of becoming more capable, you may well be seeing a convergence that will go on over time. There's still that efficiency angle, but it may be a lot more hard to make in time. And here's Linda. She says, uh, this is Linda Mamrosh, she says, hi Jonathan and listeners, it's been a while since I was able to tune in on a Saturday, and I'm enjoying the program very much as always, hard to remember that far back with all my Windows experiences, however, now I am embarrassed to say that I am using a 2014 laptop still with Windows 7. Mate, if it works for you, rock it. That's what I say. I am in the market, says Linda, for a new computer shortly, and no, I must move on to Windows 10. Any suggestions to make the transition go more smoothly for me? Also, I'm considering going back to a desktop again. Laptops are now the dominant form of computer, Uh, they surpassed desktops some time ago, but you do actually get a lot more power. A lot more bang for your buck, as they say, with a Windows desktop if you don't need the portability. I resisted having a desktop in the studio here for a long time because I thought, well, you know, with my laptop, I'm doing a lot of traveling. I can take it anywhere. And then I realized with cloud storage like Dropbox and OneDrive, you know, we've kind of gone back to the future, haven't we? And so you can have a desktop and a laptop if you need that. And everything's just synced in the cloud marvellous but uh, i guess it really depends on whether portability is important to you linda you'd certainly be able to get more power for less in a desktop you can get some pretty good uh, uh, desktops nick zamorelli was talking about um, building computers and i used to love that you know i I still do henry the wonder son-in-law And I spec'd out this computer here in the studio. And it's kind of cool when you choose the components and you know exactly what's going into it. And it's all hand-built for you. And then you can really enjoy it. Christopher went to a Microsoft and uh, uh, microsoft Enable technology camp almost two weeks ago. And it was an amazing one. Not only because I got to see my sister, but also because I now have that amazing company, as one of my after-school work options. Well, there you go. That'd be nice to work for Microsoft. It was a technology camp for middle and high school students with disabilities, and we did a lot of stuff over the course of the week. It's great to see Microsoft and other companies uh, reaching out, but in particular, Microsoft is doing a a really good job. (music) remembers microsoft bob hey remember that microsoft bob i remember bill gates getting up and giving a presentation about microsoft bob it was the precursor to things like siri really and the uh, jolly old soup drinker speaking of that let's um see what it knows about it soup drinker what was microsoft bob
3: Microsoft Bob was a Microsoft software product that was released on March 11, 1995 and discontinued in early 1996.
0: That was not helpful. Soup Drinker Wikipedia Microsoft Bob
3: Here's the Wikipedia article on Microsoft Bob. Microsoft Bob was a Microsoft software product that was released on March 11, yeah, yeah, yeah. 1995 and discontinued in early 1996. Hmm. The program was intended to provide a more user-friendly interface for the Windows 3.1X, Windows 95 and Windows NT operating systems, supplanting the Windows Program Manager. Microsoft Bob presented screens showing a house, with rooms that the user could go to containing familiar objects corresponding to computer applications, for instance, a desk with pen and paper, a checkbook, and other items. In this case, clicking on the pen and paper would open the word processor. There are six sections in this article. Here's the next few. Section 2, History. Section 3, Applications. Section 4, Gateway 2000 Edition. You can pick a specific section number anytime. For example, say Section 3. Or you can hear the remaining sections. Would you like to hear more sections? No a cartoon dog named Rover and other Ugh. cartoon characters provided guidance using speech balloons. Rover and a few others speech later balloons. returned in Windows XP as search companions. Would you like me to continue?
0: No. Yeah. Um I remember that it had some sort of talky component because um Bill Gates announced Microsoft Bob. And he was talking to it. I guess it, it sort of metamorphosized later into um, Cortana, I guess, which we still don't have in New Zealand. We still don't have it. Andy says, I've heard of Microsoft, Bob, but never used it. Sure, didn't have a long life. Now, it was probably a little bit before its time, but it's interesting when you look at some of these products. I mean, another one, actually, was the old, um, the original Freedom Box. The original Freedom Box was all about creating an interface to the increasing amount of information that was on the web in a way that could be accessible to the non-techies. So you would talk to this thing, and it would talk back. I mean, then we're talking sort of 2000 or 2001 or or thereabouts. That was pretty ahead of its time. I mean, essentially, Freedom Box was, you know, your um, soup drinker in a stop, in a in a big package, it would be interesting, says Andy, to see the future of OpenBook and K one thousand. Is that even still a thing? Oh yeah, they're both still rocking it because of um, JFW's recognition features. I mean, the recognition features in jaws are pretty amazing now. You know, you can talk directly to scanners, you can. OCR, all sorts of images. And I don't know if anybody's played with this, but the what do they call it? They've got a cool marketing name for it, where you can take an image, like a picture on Facebook or Twitter, and it will describe it from a range of sources. It's kind of cool. That's pretty nice. Um, And of course, there's smartphone apps that can do this too. Yeah, but the thing is, now this this is making my point for me. Uh, All that is true. So there is this technology now, OCR technology built into uh, JAWS. And also, I mean, I really am blown away by VoiceStream Scanner. It's funny how that app is. I I hope he's making a good money, a a good living out of VoiceStream Scanner because so many people I come across in my job are talking about it. It's, it's, It's gained critical mass very, very quickly. And people who normally... Have said to me in the past, Oh, I don't like the camera on the phone. I can never get good results from it. They love this voice stream scanner thing. And it's good, isn't it? I mean, the results that it delivers. It's it's a stunner of an app.
1: Brilliant. But
0: but this is taking me back to the point that I was making, apparently somewhat controversially earlier, about the importance of efficiency. Because what's the one well, there might be many. For me, the one important thing that both Kurzweil 1000 and Open Book do is they allow you to scan, recognize, and read at the same time. And, you know, it might not be important for many people, but for some people, it's critical. I can remember scanning a lot of books um, in, in days before ebooks were really as common as they are, you know, I'd go to the library or buy a book when it came out that I really wanted to read. And I would instantly, I can remember doing this actually with the Harry Potter books, actually. I can remember being in a line for the Harry Potter books. And again, because the day dawned first in New Zealand, we were, we were the first in the world to get those Harry Potter books. And I'd pre-order, I'd be in the queue, I'd grab my book and run home. And then I would be able to use Open Book, I think I was using Open Book then, <clears throat> but I have been a Cursor 1000 user. It's a great product, and Stephen Baum, who I think still looks after Cursor 1000, has made such a such a contribution to this industry. You can use either of those p- uh, packages to put the book on the scanner. Or these days, you could use, I guess, a Pearl camera. You could be, for example, um, scanning page six while it's speaking still page one or two and recognizing page five, and it's just seamless. You just sit there and it becomes like a rhythmic thing. You just feed the the next page to the application you're using and you can instantly start to read it continuously. So there are still some very clear advantages of those specific OCR apps. And I think this is where it's getting quite challenging for funders you have to understand the way that a blind person is going to be um, required to use a set of technology and what the most efficient way to process that information is. So in some cases, it will be the free thing. In some cases, it will not. And this is what's really troubling me, the idea that it is getting quite complex. The people who want to save money will end up giving a blind person a solution that sets them up to fail in the workplace.
1: Really
0: I tend to rely on seeing AI for some images, especially when dealing with short texts. Now, this is interesting. Uh, this is Joseph Lee talking, by the way. I recently purchased Envision AI, which was uh, which is going through a sale at the moment, because I was quite interested to find out what... The differences were, you know, what, how they performed in different situations, seeing AI versus Envision AI. I think one of the big advantages of Envision, as I understand it, is it's available in more places and more languages. So they're sort of tapping into that market, probably, of people who are hankering for seeing AI, but can't get it. But the other interesting thing is, it actually does, well, it does two things. It performs well in certain situations where seeing AI does not, and it illustrates the importance. Uh, or the usefulness of that jaws feature picture smart that's what it's called so a few maybe two or three weeks ago i was looking at twitter and there was uh a journalist in the uk who posted a photo just after boris johnson became the uk prime minister dude yeah i know you saw over the moon about being the uk prime minister aren't you boris dude yeah and uh I was interested in what the photo was. So I sent the photo to Seeing AI first and it went ding, 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 ding. And um, it came back and it said um, something like three men wearing suits um, looking neutral or something like that. So that was all right. And then I gave the same picture to Envision, and it said, looks like Boris Johnson with two other people, and Boris Johnson's wearing a suit. And I thought to myself, dude, yeah, that's pretty useful,
3: dude.
0: Uh, so, and the, the good thing is you put that same picture through Smart, and JAWS is getting the description from multiple sources. So what you find with the, the Smart feature in JAWS is that because it's polling multiple uh, sources of image description, by the time you look at all of those different descriptions, you do have quite a good picture of what the picture is actually containing. Sarah actually agrees with me about something. This is the ability to scan and read with Open Book or Kurzweil 1000. She says, yeah, that's true. I used to scan and read for hours on end, and I was an English major. So lots of reading was involved. That's passive voice, Sarah. If you're an English major, you shouldn't be using passive voice. (laughs) Scanning and reading is great. It is. I remember having this discussion with people who were trying to tell me you don't need, you know, the tech companies are fleecing blind people. You don't need this thing and use OmniPage instead. But I couldn't do this with OmniPage. I couldn't take a book, instantly get it home and do what a sighted person does. Yo, take the book home, sit down and instantly start to read
1: it.
0: Linda, she says, I guess I am remembering using WordPerfect in the DOS days. Yes, I felt that WordPerfect was so powerful. Well, it was to be fair, Linda. It was a really powerful application. I loved creating a macro to accomplish a bunch of steps with just a few keystrokes. See what I wonder. If you were sat in front of a DOS PC with WordPerfect 5.1 or 6, I can't remember why so many blind. I remember with WordPerfect 6, by default, it puts you into a graphical mode that wasn't screen reader accessible. But in some t- somehow people didn't get the memo that there was a command line switch you could enter. It was like WP slash Something, and it would put it back into the text mode. So a lot of people stayed away from WordPerfect. If we all sat down, those of us who were using WordPerfect back then, would we be able to use it now? Would it just come back as soon as we got into WP for DOS? Plus, you'd have your screen reader commands. Linda continues, though, re staying asleep. As odd as it sounds, it seems that the busier the day has been for me, the worse my. Sleep maybe that night, as if my brain can't wind down. Yeah, that sounds like genuine insomnia there, Linda. And I think there is a difference between insomnia and non twenty-four. It sounds like what you're talking about is the, is the real deal, the real insomnia. Now Bonnie, on the other hand, is extraordinary. I mean, she is, she's extraordinary for putting up with me. Uh, she's extraordinary in a whole bunch of ways. But one of the ways that she's really extraordinary is especially when, when I was working from home and I'd sometimes be up at two or three in the morning to work with American types and I'd misplaced something or whatever. And I realized that I could have no qualms about waking Bonnie up and saying, Bonnie, do you know where something or other is? And she'll say if she knows, and I'll say, thank you. She might even get up and make a cup of tea or she might not, you know, she, but, but she will just be able to get back to sleep Like that. It's an extraordinary gift. I'm not like that. If I get woken up in the night, my brain's kicked in. One thing I wonder if you have considered, Linda, is meditation. Meditation can really help with that winding down at the end of the day. There is a really cool new meditation. I I mentioned this last week, but you might not have been listening last week. You didn't bring me a note, Linda. You might not have been listening last week, so I'll mention it again. There's a really cool meditation in the Calm app, as in C-A-L-M, just in case my accent's obscuring the mythic. And it's called, it's a guided meditation, um, for, Fall Asleep With Gratitude. And she's great. I've been sort of exploring a few of these meditation apps lately because there's a new… There's a new accessible one. It's been around for a long time. But there's an app called Insight Timer that has just become a lot more accessible. And they have hundreds and hundreds of different meditations and teachers. But see, the voice makes a real difference. So some of these people who have these guided get-to-sleep meditations are like, I'm not going to sleep with your voice on. Ooh. Yeah. But uh, Tamara Levitt, who does the calm stuff, she's, she's very good. She's just got a nice manner about her and um, so it's a 50 minute guided meditation and it starts you off by relaxing you going through like the typical med sort of sleepy meditation thing where you relax your muscles and it's basically putting your brain in a in a gear that says I've done all I have to do today there's nothing more to do it's a really and then it moves you into the gratitude mode. And I've been using this a lot lately. It's really, really good. So do check out the car map if you haven't already. If you're into that sort of thing. How about WP for Windows? says Steve Cutway. Hi again. WP for Windows works fine with Jaws and the scripts are still updated as each new version comes out. I'm at version X7. One can still set the keyboard layout to WP 5.1 and use all the function key commands. I haven't done that, but Nancy still does. Use something long enough, and you'll never forget how. Yes, that's, that's absolutely right. Well, I have no idea. The thing about screen reading technology is that it has evolved. Most screen readers are not really doing a lot of reading of the screen anymore. The term screen reader is somewhat a misnomer. When you load a document from Microsoft Word, now your screen reader, whatever you're using, Supernova, NVDA, JAWS, Narrator, they're not reading the screen. They're actually interrogating the actual document. And you're engaging directly with the with the data from the document. Uh, I wonder if WordPerfect uses all that new UI automation technology because it is really reliable. In the older days of scripting Microsoft Word, sometimes you get some weird anomalies, like you you turn bold on and you wouldn't get told when bold was off and Various things like that. So that I had no idea WP for Windows was still a thing. Steve Cutway also says Stephen Baum retired some time back. Oh, so he is no longer involved with Kurzweil 1000. I'm told that it isn't being updated as regularly as when he was, which wouldn't surprise me because he really made that product. He was one of two cited people. That really understood the blindness perspective about user interfaces. Eric Damry is the other. Now I will add a third person to this list, and uh, that is Jonathan Sharp from Post Data. Uh, Jonathan Sharp had an extraordinary ability to understand how blind people use stuff. Absolutely extraordinary, and um, it's one of the things that made Keysoft such a successful product. I could write a book. Well, why don't you then? I could write a book, says Steve, about my Windows recollections, but will resist. My computer experience goes back to the CPM days long before anyone outside Xerox had even thought about a Windows type interface. Roger D Roger D. may remember the Ampro computers running Versatext on the classic Versa Braille. I'm still looking for a working TSI game center. But I digress, says Steve. My first PC ran Arctic Business Vision, and their synthesizers were first rate. They were, weren't they? I mean, people criticised the sound of them, but boy, you could crank them up, man. And they were, they were as responsive as all soup. Oh, I'm sorry for swearing. But they were. I appeared, says Steve on a national CBC radio program in May 1995 called Gaborow, during which the host, Vicky Gaborow, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, asked me how a blind person navigates Windows. I said then, with difficulty. Now it's much easier, thanks to Microsoft and Vespero, In the Windows 3.1 and 3.11 days, I used Arctic Business Vision for Windows, Slimware Window Bridge, and JAWS. Slimware Window Bridge was, of course, from Canada. And so was ProTalk. Anybody remember ProTalk? I could never get that thing to work. It it, it was around for years, and I never once got it to behave itself. It was a company called BioLink, I think, who did ProTalk.
1: Jonathan Mosen, Mosen at Large Podcast.
0: I promised that I was going to update you on my quest, my sacred quest, to get myself in a position where I can hear the Dolby Atmos mix of the Beatles' Abbey Road. So I am not aware of any other album that is available in Dolby Atmos, but Giles Martin is not only producing a standard stereo remix of Abbey Road for 2019 – not only is he doing a high-res stereo mix at 96 kHz and probably 32-bit, not only is he doing a 5.1 mix, which we can play on the Sonos, but he's also doing a Dolby Atmos mix of Abbey Road, and I don't have the ability to play it. Oh. So we have been on this quest, and the latest is that I have made contact with the Victoria University of Wellington, which I understand has Dolby Atmos playback equipment. So I did some research. I looked up on the website, and it turns out, and I kid you not, that the person who is ultimately probably going to make the decision about whether they'll let me have the access to this Dolby Atmos playback equipment is a person by the name of Dr. Voice. Isn't that good to be involved in audio production with your name being Dr. Voice, it's about V-O-Y-C-E. But it does remind me that in the 1970s in New Zealand, we had a Minister of Minds called Fraser Coleman. <laughs> That's pretty good. Yeah, Dr. Voice, the the audio production man. I pointed out that um, there aren't that many Dolby Atmos movies that are audio described, which is probably true. I mean, and, and the, I'm just like a Beatles fan, have been all my life. Is there any way that I could hire during the weekend when it's not being used? the Dolby Atmos playback room and I am an alumni of Victoria University now I await the outcome of my plaintiff plea will Dr. Voice and his team give me access so I can hear the Beatles Dolby Atmos mix of Abbey Road oh my word the tension there you go I finally found it I finally found the hook that has you on Tinder hooks and Tonto hooks for the next episode of the Mosin at Large podcast. I'm already looking forward to it. We're going to talk about big items of news, where were you when, and what you remember, and much more. See you then. Mosin at-